Section 32 of Volume 1E of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matt Lusher. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1E, Section 32. Chapter 56, Part 5 When the Scottish Covenanters obtained that end for which they so earnestly contended, the establishment of Presbyterian discipline in their own country, they were not satisfied, but indulged still in an ardent passion for propagating, by all methods, that mode of religion in the neighboring kingdoms. Having flattered themselves in the fervor of their zeal, that by supernatural assistances they should be enabled to carry their triumphant covenant to the gates of Rome itself, it behooved them first to render it prevalent in England, which already showed so great a disposition to receive it. Even in the Articles of Pacification they expressed a desire of uniformity in worship with England, and the king, employing general expressions, had approved of this inclination as pious, and no sooner was there an appearance of a rupture than the English Parliament, in order to allure that nation into a close confederacy, openly declared their wishes of ecclesiastical reformation, and of imitating the example of their northern brethren. When war was actually commenced, the same artifices were used, and the Scots beheld, with the utmost impatience, a scene of action of which they could not deem themselves indifferent spectators. Should the king, they said, be able by force of arms to prevail over the Parliament of England, and re-establish his authority in that powerful kingdom, he will undoubtedly retract all those concessions which, with so many circumstances of violence and indignity, the Scots have extorted from him. Besides a sense of his own interest, and a regard to royal power, which has been entirely annihilated in this country, his very passion for prelacy and for religious ceremonies must lead him to invade a church which he has ever been taught to regard as anti-Christian and unlawful. Let us but consider who the persons are that compose the factions now so furiously engaged in arms. Does not the Parliament consist of those very men who have ever opposed all war with Scotland? who have punished the authors of our oppressions, who have obtained us the redress of every grievance, and who, with many honorable expressions, have conferred on us an ample reward for our brotherly assistance? And is not the court full of papists, prelates, malignants, all of them zealous enemies to our religious model, and resolute to sacrifice their lives for their idolatrous establishments? Not to mention our own necessary security, can we better express our gratitude to heaven for that pure light with which we are, above all nations, so eminently distinguished, than by conveying the same divine knowledge to our unhappy neighbors, who are waiting through a sea of blood in order to attain it? These were in Scotland the topics of every conversation. With these doctrines the pulpits echoed, and the famous curse of Morose, that curse so solemnly denounced and reiterated against neutrality and moderation, resounded from all quarters. The Parliament of England had ever invited the Scots, from the commencement of the civil dissensions, to interpose their mediation, which they knew would be so little favorable to the king. And the king, for that very reason, had ever endeavored, with the least offensive expressions, to decline it. Early this spring, the Earl of Luton, the Chancellor, with other commissioners, and attended by Henderson, a popular and intriguing preacher, was sent to the king at Oxford, and renewed the offer of mediation, but with the same success as before. 
The commissioners were also empowered to press the king on the article of religion, and to recommend to him the Scottish model of ecclesiastic worship and discipline. This was touching Charles in a very tender point. His honor, his conscience, as well as his interest, he believed to be intimately concerned in supporting prelacy and the liturgy. He begged the commissioners, therefore, to remain satisfied with the concessions which he had made to Scotland, and having modeled their own church according to their own principles, to leave their neighbors in the like liberty, and not to intermeddle with affairs of which they could not be supposed competent judges. The divines of Oxford, secure as they imagined of a victory, by means of their authorities from church history, their quotations from the fathers, and their spiritual arguments, desired a conference with Henderson, and undertook by dint of reasoning to convert that great apostle of the north. But Henderson, who had ever regarded as impious the least doubt with regard to his own principles, and who knew of a much better way to reduce opponents than by employing any theological topics, absolutely refused all disputation or controversy. The English divines went away full of admiration at the blind assurance and bigoted prejudices of the man. He, on his part, was moved with equal wonder at their obstinate attachment to such palpable errors and delusions. By the concessions which the king had granted to Scotland, it became necessary for him to summon a parliament once every three years, and in June of the subsequent year was fixed the period for the meeting of that assembly. Before that time passed, Charles flattered himself that he should be able, by some decisive advantage, to reduce the English Parliament to a reasonable submission, and might then expect with security the meeting of a Scottish Parliament. Though earnestly solicited by Luton to summon presently that great council of the nation, he absolutely refused to give authority to men who had already excited such dangerous commotions and who showed still the same disposition to resist and invade his authority. The commissioners, therefore, not being able to prevail in any of their demands, desired the king's passport for London, where they purposed to confer with the English Parliament, and being likewise denied this request, they returned with extreme dissatisfaction to Edinburgh. The office of conservators of the peace was newly erected in Scotland in order to maintain the confederacy between the two kingdoms, and these, instigated by the clergy, were resolved, since they could not obtain the king's consent, to summon in his name, but by their own authority, a convention of states, and to bereave the sovereign of this article, the only one which remained out of his prerogative. Under color of providing for national peace, endangered by the neighborhood of English armies, was a convention called, an assembly which, though it meets with less solemnity, has the same authority as a parliament in raising money and levying forces. Hamilton and his brother, the Earl of Lanerick, who had been sent into Scotland in order to oppose these measures, wanted either authority or sincerity, and passively yielded to the torrent. The General Assembly of the Church met at the same time with the Convention, and exercising an authority almost absolute over the whole civil power, made every political consideration yield to their theological zeal and prejudices. The English Parliament was at that time fallen into great distress by the progress of the royal arms, and they gladly sent to Edinburgh commissioners with ample powers to treat of a nearer union and confederacy with the Scottish nation. The persons employed were the Earl of Rutland, Sir William Armine, Sir Henry Vane the Younger, Thomas Hatcher, and Henry Daly, attended by Marshall and Nye, two clergymen of signal authority. In this negotiation, the man chiefly trusted was Vane, who in eloquence, address, capacity, as well as in art and dissimulation, was not surpassed by any one even during that age 
so famous for active talents. By his persuasion was framed at Edinburgh that solemn league and covenant which he faced all former protestations and vows taken in both kingdoms, and long maintained its credit and authority. In this covenant, the subscribers, besides engaging mutually to defend each other against all opponents, bound themselves to endeavor, without respect of persons, the extirpation of popery and prelacy, superstition, heresy, schism, and profaneness, to maintain the rights and privileges of parliaments, together with the king's authority, and to discover and bring to justice all incendiaries and malignants. The subscribers of the covenant vowed also to preserve the reformed religion established in the Church of Scotland. But by the artifice of vain, no declaration more explicit was made with regard to England and Ireland than that these kingdoms should be reformed according to the word of God and the example of the purest churches. The Scottish zealots, when prelacy was abjured, deemed this expression quite free from ambiguity and regarded their own model as the only one which corresponded in any degree to such a description. But that able politician had other views, and while he employed his great talents in overreaching the Presbyterians, and secretly laughed at their simplicity, he had blindly devoted himself to the maintenance of systems still more absurd and more dangerous. In the English Parliament there remained some members who, though they had been induced, either by private ambition or by zeal for civil liberty, to concur with the majority, still retained an attachment to the hierarchy, and to the ancient modes of worship. But in the present danger which threatened their cause, all scruples were laid aside, and the covenant, by whose means alone they could expect to obtain so considerable a reinforcement as the accession of the Scottish nation, was received without opposition. The Parliament, therefore, having first subscribed it themselves, ordered it to be received by all who lived under their authority. Great were the rejoicings among the Scots that they should be the happy instruments of extending their mode of religion and dissipating that profound darkness in which the neighboring nations were involved. The General Assembly applauded this glorious imitation of the piety displayed by their ancestors who, they said, in three different applications, during the reign of Elizabeth, had endeavored to engage the English, by persuasion, to lay aside the use of the surplice, tippet, and corner cap. The Convention, too, in the height of their zeal, ordered every one to swear to this covenant under the penalty of confiscation. Besides what further punishment it should please the ensuing Parliament to inflict upon the refusers, as enemies to God, to the King, and to the Kingdom. And being determined that the sword should carry conviction to all refractory minds, they prepared themselves, with great vigilance and activity, for their military enterprises. By means of a hundred thousand pounds which they received from England, by the hopes of good pay and warm quarters, not to mention men's favorable disposition towards the cause, they soon completed their levies, and having added to their other forces the troops which they had recalled from Ireland, they were ready, about the end of the year, to enter England under the command of their old general, the Earl of Leven, with an army of above twenty thousand men. The king, foreseeing this tempest which was gathering upon him, endeavored to secure himself by every expedient, and he cast his eye towards Ireland, in the hopes that this kingdom, from which his cause had already received so much prejudice, might at length contribute somewhat toward his protection and security. After the commencement of the Irish insurrection, the English Parliament, though they undertook the suppression of it, had ever been too much engaged, either in military projects or expeditions at home, to take any effectual step towards finishing that enterprise. They had entered, indeed, into a contract with the Scots 
for sending over an army of ten thousand men into Ireland, and in order to engage that nation in this undertaking, besides giving a promise of pay, they agreed to put Carrickfergus into their hands, and to invest their general with an authority quite independent of the English government. These troops, so long as they were allowed to remain, were useful by diverting the force of the Irish rebels, and protecting in the north the small remnants of the British planters. But except this contract with the Scottish nation, all the other measures of the Parliament either were hitherto absolutely insignificant, or tended rather to the prejudice of the Protestant cause in Ireland. By continuing their violent persecution, and still more violent menaces against priests and papists, they confirmed the Irish Catholics in their rebellion, and cut off all hopes of indulgence and toleration. By disposing beforehand of all the Irish forfeitures to subscribers or adventurers, they rendered all men of property desperate, and seemed to threaten a total extirpation of the natives. And while they thus infused zeal and animosity into the enemy, no measure was pursued which would tend to support or encourage the Protestants, now reduced to the last extremities. So great is the ascendant which, from a long course of successes, the English has acquired over the Irish nation, that though the latter, when they receive military discipline among foreigners, are not surpassed by any troops, they have never, in their own country, been able to make any vigorous effort for the defense or recovery of their liberties. In many rencounters, the English, under Lord Moore, Sir William St. Ledger, Sir Frederick Hamilton, and others, had, though under great disadvantages of situation and numbers, put the Irish to rout, and returned in triumph to Dublin. The rebels raised the siege of Treda, after an obstinate defense made by the garrison. Ormond had obtained two complete victories at Kilrush and Ross, and had brought relief to all the forts which were besieged or blockaded in different parts of the kingdom. But notwithstanding these successes, even the most common necessaries of life were wanting to the victorious armies. The Irish, in their wild rage against the British planters, had laid waste the whole kingdom, and were themselves totally unfit, from their habitual sloth and ignorance, to raise any convenience of human life. During the course of six months, no supplies had come from England, except the fourth part of one small vessel's lading. Dublin, to save itself from starving, had been obliged to send the greater part of its inhabitants to England. The army had little ammunition, scarcely exceeding forty barrels of gunpowder, not even shoes or clothes, and for want of food the soldiers had been obliged to eat their own horses. And though the distress of the Irish was not much inferior, besides that they were more hardened against such extremities, it was but a melancholy reflection that the two nations, while they continued their furious animosities, should make desolate that fertile island, which might serve to the subsistence and happiness of both. The justices and council of Ireland had been engaged, chiefly by the interest and authority of Ormond, to fall into an entire dependence on the king. Parsons, Temple, Loftus, and Meredith, who favored the opposite party, had been removed, and Charles had supplied their place by others better affected to his service. A committee of the English House of Commons, which had been sent over to Ireland in order to conduct the affairs of that kingdom, had been excluded the council, in obedience to orders transmitted from the king, and these were reasons sufficient, besides the great difficulties under which they themselves labored, why the Parliament was unwilling to send supplies to an army which, though engaged in a cause much favored by them, was commanded by their declared enemies. They even intercepted some small succors sent thither by the king. The king, as he had neither money, arms, ammunition, nor provisions to spare from his own urgent wants, 
resolved to embrace an expedient which might at once relieve the necessities of the Irish Protestants and contribute to the advancement of his affairs in England. A truce with the rebels, he thought, would enable his subjects in Ireland to provide for their own support, and would procure him the assistance of the army against the English Parliament. But as a treaty with the people so odious for their barbarities, and still more for their religion, might be represented in invidious colors, and renew all those calumnies with which he had been loaded, it was necessary to proceed with great caution in conducting that measure. A remonstrance from the army was made to the Irish Council, representing their intolerable necessities, and craving permission to leave the kingdom. And if that were refused, we must have recourse, they said, to that first and primary law with which God has endowed all men. We mean the law of nature, which teaches every creature to preserve itself. Memorials both to the king and parliament were transmitted by the justices and council, in which their wants and dangers are strongly set forth. And though the general expressions in these memorials might perhaps be suspected of exaggeration, yet from the particular facts mentioned, from the confession of the English Parliament itself, and from the very nature of things, it is apparent that the Irish Protestants were reduced to great extremities, and it became prudent in the king, if not absolutely necessary, to embrace some expedient which might secure them for a time from the ruin and misery with which they were threatened. Accordingly, the king gave orders to Ormond and the justices to conclude, for a year, a cessation of arms with the Council of Kilkenny, by whom the Irish were governed, and to leave both sides in possession of their present advantages. The Parliament, whose business it was to find fault with every measure adopted by the opposite party, and who would not lose so fair an opportunity of reproaching the king with his favor to the Irish papists, exclaimed loudly against this cessation. Among other reasons, they insisted upon the divine vengeance, which England might justly dread for tolerating anti-Christian idolatry, on pretense of civil contracts and political agreements. Religion, though every day employed as the engine of their own ambitious purposes, was supposed too sacred to be yielded up to the temporal interests or safety of kingdoms. After the cessation, there was little necessity, as well as no means, of subsisting the army in Ireland. The king ordered Ormond, who was entirely devoted to him, to send over considerable bodies of it to England. Most of them continued in his service, but a small part, having imbibed in Ireland a strong animosity against the Catholics, and hearing the king's party universally reproached with popery, soon after deserted to the Parliament. Some Irish Catholics came over with these troops, and joined the royal army, where they continued the same cruelties and disorders to which they had been accustomed. The Parliament voted that no quarter in any action should ever be given to them. But Prince Rupert, by making some reprisals, soon repressed this inhumanity. End of section 23, chapter 56, part 5. Recording by Matt Lusher, San Francisco.